Hello and welcome to Bottled Up on a mission to create conversations and make the mental health of men a top priority. You're joined by myself, Sunny, and Mayank, close friends from university who want to share the stories of everyday people on our platform. The reason? Because we are not alone. Before we kick this conversation off, thank you for tuning in and listening. If you haven't already, it would be awesome if you could rate, review, and follow our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your conversations. It makes a huge difference to our reach with these awesome guests and potentially life-saving conversations. And if you haven't just yet, it takes 20 to 30 seconds to leave us a review and would help us out massively. As for today's guest, back in November last year, Sunny and I had the pleasure of sitting down with the CEO of the Wellbeing Outfit, Jono Nicholas. Jono is one of Australia's most prominent advocates for better mental health and has an honours degree in psychology and a master's degree in public health. He was a founding staff member of Reach Out, Australia's leading digital mental health service for young people and their parents. During his 20-year tenure with Reach Out, he established a service in the US and is CEO of Reach Out Australia from 2010 to 2018. In 2018, he stepped down as the CEO to establish the Wellbeing Outfit, a consultancy firm dedicated to helping organizations improve their performance by improving the well-being of their people. Through the Wellbeing Outfit, he's an executive consultant specializing in mental health, advising large organizations on strategies to improve their mental health and well-being of their staff and customers. So with that little introduction there, hope you enjoy this conversation with Jono Nicholas. We've got a lot of questions for you today, but I think the the main one that we've got for you first up here, Jono, is how do you rate our MOs at the moment? Can it, can it, it's probably the answer is what what's your aspirational MO versus the reality? <laughs> <laughs> he's got the us reality. there, man. Yeah, he's got <laughs> us. Just say that like I'm I'm yeah my my background's Maltese, so this is like the difference between breakfast and lunchtime. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> So that's the that's kind of the challenge of uh, of, of uh, progression through November. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll be honest here, John Owen, say that uh, this the, this little shedding on my on my upper lip has taken me around about two to three months. So you, you had like a three year leading. You started that pre pandemic, mate. Yeah, that too. Yeah, uh, and somewhere in twenty twenty five, you'll nail like a good bushy bow. Wishy mo, yeah. I think I need to take some yeah. testosterone yeah. tablets. Aspirations, mate. Yeah, aspirations. <laughs> aspirations, mate. Aspirations is where we begin. Uh, Jonah, there's a there's a second question we have. Uh, there's a little birdie that told us that you back Crystal Palace uh, in the Premier League. How do you? The, the reason why you should always support a middle of the road team is it teaches you that winning is not the most important thing in life. Oh, like, of course. That is the one thing. See, the <laughs> yes. trouble is if you you know you support a Manchester United, you expect to win, and then your life is just an ongoing failure right whereas if you're the and you're coming you know ninth rather than 14th then you know your life is just one long success so so it's really about anchoring it in the right story said like every true supporter of a team that sucks really (laughs) and i and i can completely understand where you're coming from jonah because i'm an essendon supporter and we've known mediocrity for the past 26 years so um yeah so that you know in another again by the time you finish your mo you guys should you know make the finals regularly (laughs) that'll be the that'll be the goal somewhere in 2025 there'll be a a really kind of good essendon team coming through yeah we'll Uh, we'll reach the finals but we won't actually win one that's yeah yeah. that's that's usually how it goes (laughs) exactly exactly yeah where do we begin i feel like we've got a lot to cover um with hopefully um within the hour hopefully as well um Mank, where do we begin with this one? This, uh, I feel like I've got a thousand questions I want to ask, Jono. <laughs> yeah, no, I do, I do, and uh, yeah, we, we always ask this question of every single guest that we that we that we get on. Um, so, Jono, how, how are you doing? Um, how are you really doing? Um, if, if the introduction is anything to go by, you're a very busy man. Um, you're doing multiple different things, but I'd love to get to know, um, you know, how you're doing at the moment, and um, yeah, just thought we'd check in and see and see what's up, what's up. Yeah, so I look, I'm about a seven out of ten at the moment. Okay, like I yep. think. Um, in fact, one of the things that we do at Wellbeing Outfit, we do a re- we do a fortnightly wellbeing check in. So we just did it yesterday, right. which is sort of a good calibration with the team. I think, like, look, like most people, I'm really, really tired. But um, one of the advantages about doing the work that I do is you get to talk to people and keep looking at all the strategies around mm-hmm. how you transform energy. So, look, to be honest, my kind of biggest challenge is is matching what I share with other people as the strategies for better wellbeing. 
and living up to it myself. So that's always a good that's always a good challenge for me. But yeah, looking forward to a good break. But um, generally, pretty excited, pretty excited about the world. Awesome, that's a uh, really good man. And I think like even reading up reading up on your story, Mank and I, um, you know, we've we've seen the work that you've been doing with EY over the last uh, year and a half. We started as grads last year. Um, and it's been truly, I think, really, really insightful. A lot of the things you have to say, and I'm quite keen to like dig into like uh, a lot of the stuff you've talked about, like drivers of well-being. I've I've um, heard you say about you know life is about living six or seven um, out of ten and, and being mm-hmm. higher than that, and I think that's what really leads to a fulfilling life. But I think you you've got quite a unique perspective because you've been in the industry or been in the space of mental health for quite some time, um, more than two decades um, or thereabouts, or maybe just about two decades. Um, and so there's a wealth of experience there. Um, what got, what got you into the space, um, to begin with? Cause often what we find is there's always a story that, that starts it off. Um, but yeah, what was the story like for you, Jono, um, getting into the space before we dive into a couple more <laughs> things about what you've seen? Yeah. So Sonny, I, I grew up around psychology. My, my father is a clinical psychologist. He had a practice at home, um, when, and still does, but when, when we were growing up. So for me, it was, Kind of counseling and therapy and psychology was part of our was part of my growing up experience. Um, so certainly the burdens of that on him, and certainly the the challenges um, of what that means to kind of be helping others. I think that's a really also a good place to start, which is um, being there for others takes energy and 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 kind of comes with a cost. The big kind of thing for me though was I grew up in Newcastle, north of Sydney and lost a friend of mine to suicide when I was 14 and made a decision at that point that this is the space that I wanted to go in uh, and I'd dedicate my, my life and career to that. I didn't really know what that meant, as most 14-year-olds do. Like, I don't think, you know, I didn't sort of say, hey, I want to be Chief Mental Health Advisor at EY at age 14. There wasn't a kind of a linear path. But what it was for me was a recognition that as everyone else was being really distressed, I was pretty good at holding the space. Mm that I could kind of talk to people and, and, and I liked talking to people and I can't, and I, and I like talking to people about mess. Right. So I think my journey in that space was one about this, you know, this devastating experience, but it wasn't just therefore I have an impulse. It was, it was that reflection which says, actually, I think I can do this. And I think I like talking to people about mess. And I think I like trying to help them get through to the other side of that um that obviously was a bit of a meld of my experiences with my family and my father and seeing him do it and then this experience saying can i do it mixed in with a you know a 14 year old's desire to have an answer as to Mm. what am i gonna do you know coming out of year nine or year 10 or whatever it was at the time yeah i feel like it's it would have been like just just the stuff you've seen over the last two decades as well how have you seen sort of the space and the literature develop um, in mental health, of course, when you started Reach Out as one of the first, um, you know, digital mental health organisations, I can only imagine that, um, you know, that there wasn't much going on in terms of dialogue, perhaps, or perhaps there was, and perhaps that was the first step forward. Um, how have you seen things change um, over the last, you know, twenty or so years? Um, have you obviously we've seen it more in the forefront of a lot of our minds, and especially the year that's been uh, last year, a lot more people are talking about it. Um, than I've previously seen. Um, and do you still feel that there's a lot to go forward with, um, yeah, within the space? Yeah, so I think there's probably a couple of things there, right? So, so I, I grew up in the 90s, I'm, I'm in my 40s now, I grew up in Newcastle, right? And what happened in the 90s, particularly for men and particularly for young men is for a lot of young guys, our sense of identity shifted as the global economy restructured mm. so if you pick mm. newcastle as an example when i went to school you know a lot of my friends dads were fitter and turners or mechanics or um managers at bhp bhp started pulling out in newcastle um and what did we see right through the 90s it's really kind of important about australia's mental health journey is a lot of young guys didn't see their themselves in the future story of australia Right. When they went to school, be like, I'm going to leave, I'm going to get an apprenticeship, I'm going to join BHP and I'm going to have a good life and, you know, live in Newcastle, get a boat, go to Lake Macquarie and um, and that's what they wanted. And then all of a sudden, from their point of view, the world changed around them, but they couldn't see an alternative answer. 
Right. So what happened through the 90s that was very much then part of that mental health journey in Australia is youth suicide rates skyrocketed. Mm. Right. So how did Reach Out get created? It actually got created out of an intense community fear that something that people didn't really think could happen was happening at a rate in Australia that really, really scared the Australian community. The government responded to that. What's interesting about the government response was the government acknowledged it had no idea what to mm. do and so actually put out a bunch of experimental funding. So Reach Out was the first digital health, mental health service in, in the world, as you said, right? 1997, when we started, there were 37,000 Australians on the internet. Mm. The internet was a 12.5K dial-up modem that you had to plug into the wall and turn on. <laughs> yeah. And the noise right? it made. It was really <laughs> funny. At the time we started Reach Out, most organizations had one email mm. in, you know, that was the organizational email. So really what was the impulse was this really big macro journey, particularly for mm. young guys that they didn't see themselves in the future story of Australia. They didn't see themselves being valued that led to intense pessimism that led to suicide government responding, saying, Hey, we don't have a functioning response to this. Let's fund a bunch of really interesting initiatives which reach out was one at the same time you know the the prelude to that was actually you know triple j ran a real appeal ran a ran a fundraising appeal for youth suicide and that that meant that young people actually at the time put in the funding also mm. to get reach out off the ground so what what was the story of reach out it was actually really really powerful which was it was young people themselves who created the money for a service that they wanted and then the government came in. So what did that mean for us in terms of the journey mental health? We did some things, and this was my first job, that today are pretty well accepted, but at that point was revolutionary. We set up, um, and my job was to set up a youth advisory board to make sure that young people who were users of the service were involved in designing the service. A lot of clinicians said, don't, whatever you do, don't kind of ask the crazy young people mm. what they want because they don't know what they want. You have to have experts. And to his credit, Jack, who founded the organisation, you know, I was 20 at the time, kind of backed young people to guide the service. And now we have in, in terms of mental health and maturity, it makes sense that you just ask people who have lived experience is a really big part of mental mm -hmm. health. So I think, yes, Australia is kind of really matured in their conversation. Certainly corporate Australia through, through COVID have really matured in the conversation. I think social media has been a big part of that because of young course. people are able to share their stories directly with the world without it being mediated through media. Um, and they're able, so I think, you know, there's been a couple of different generations of this, but probably the big thing about social media is for the first time in history, adults got an inside look at young people's minds because they were sharing it in public spaces, right? And therefore they go, wow, teenagers are kind of doing this. And then they went, actually, this is, you know, this is also going on with others. I think the other part of it is I did my, my thesis on the causes, the relationship between suicide or suicidal behaviour and sexuality. So I did the first Australian study looking at the relationship between sexual orientation and suicidal behaviour mm. in 1998. Mm. And what was really interesting at the time is there were almost no diverse um, young people represented in the media, right? <laughs> Anyone who was gay was generally seen in the media as dysfunctional or highly camp, right? Yeah. And so the young guys I spoke to and worked with, the reason they became suicidal was in part that they believed that if they came out and were who they were, they would be rejected. Mm. What we're seeing now is actually, again, because of social media, is lots of people know that they can find their community and their community may be one that's not part of their physical community. In, in 97, if you were in you know, Tamworth, I, I was interviewing young people in, in Lithgow, mm. They literally had no way of knowing whether their experience was like anyone else's experience. Mm, and we kind of forget that about the digital age, right? It was, mm. they, they, they thought that they were the only one and they didn't know what to do. And so therefore the world mm. was isolated. So I think there's been a bunch of really good things with mental health. Yeah. There's yeah, certainly been some really kind of big mental health challenges, but um, I think we've also got a long mm. way to go. To, to really address the um, address the issues yeah. that are emerging out, out of what we're seeing. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think you made a really good point about having people that have lived experience being the people that actually shape um, a lot of the policy and a lot of the work that's happening within the mental health space. 
uh, we actually sat down with someone, a guy, a fellow by the name of Matthew Jackman, who is uh, studying mad studies, um, which you may have heard about. And uh, it's this idea that we, that mental health is very intersectional. There's many different points that come into that whole picture of mental health and, um, you know, poverty, um, whether it's neurodiversity, um, your identity. He was also a non non-binary person. Um, and MAD studies is this, this uh, discipline in the very same way that um, queer studies is. Like queer used to be this term to like marginalize um, parts of society, you know, back in the 60s, 70s or 80s. And now that's a reclamation uh, by the people that are queer that have reclaimed that term back um, in, the, in the same way that people in like the 80s were called MAD um, for yeah. having having like a mental health issue. And that, again, is a reclamation of, um, you know, what's happened. Uh, over the last 20, 30 years and getting people um, who are studying MAD studies to talk through their lived experience and shape um, mental health. Mank, I can see your your thinking. You probably got a question that you're probably <laughs> yearning to ask. No. Uh, yeah. No, no, no. I think, no, sorry, I think you've, you've literally, I was literally going to say the exact same thing as you as well. I think, you know, I listened to Matt's pod and it was, it was certainly something that you know, I, that I didn't know about, which is great. Um, and, and I guess just touching on what you said there, Jono, I think a big thing that came out of what you said there was around systems and really mm. treating these mental health mm. issues at a systemic issue, as a systemic issue with a systemic kind of treatment. Because at the end of the day, we're, we're all human. And, and despite the fact that we might have those characteristic differences, we all tend to react to micro kind of events, whether it be you no know, personal events in, in the case of Newcastle was jobs and employment um, and and macro events, for example, things like like COVID at the moment, and 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 similar to to what Sunny said, it's, it's really interesting how you how you said that you know uh, people with lived experiences could shape the design of the new dis- of the new digital platform, which in itself can be used as a reliable sample size of how the population might benefit from the digital platform. Like, would that be would that, would that be correct in kind of the philosophy behind reach out at the time and and the digital platform that you guys created? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, what is the biggest challenge in, in any community at the moment is we've got to do mental health at scale. Mm, yeah. One of the challenges that we continue to write about, continue to talk about um, when I was leading Reach Out was the mental health system as a business model is a business model that doesn't scale well. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yep. And you're seeing that at the moment where, a pandemic hits and it's almost impossible for someone to see a psychologist, right? The, the, let alone a psychiatrist, right? And, and people then say, oh, well, we need more psychologists. We need, and my argument was actually, we also need to look at this as, as an overarching business model and say, well, what are the scalable parts of the mental health system? And, and what are the non-scalable parts and don't think of quality only in, in terms of intensity. So if you ask most people around mental health, they'd say they actually kind of rank it and then would go, oh, a psychiatrist is more of an expert than a psychologist is more of an expert than a digital mental health service. Rather than saying each one of those intersections in mental health are solving a different problem. They're just doing it in a kind of high intensity, low scale versus a low intensity, high scale. scale. You started to see some of this thinking after many, many years come through government policy making. Um, But it's very much how we think of as business, right? That that if you're launching a business and, and the way in which you grow your business can be, you know, let's say it's restaurants, right? Every restaurant you create actually has high internal complexity and it's very, very hard to scale a restaurant model, right? Unless you're Maccas. Because that's absolutely yeah. right. And that's <laughs> part of the renewal model that they worked out was scalable, which was quick service restaurants, McDonald's, KFC, right? But then you have to do other compromises, right? You have to have a narrow menu. You have to do a whole bunch of other things to, to do it. So one of the challenges that we've got with mental health is we actually have to think about it as a system and say, what is the right response to the right problem rather than pushing everybody through a single funnel? And then we actually have a systemic um, response to a systemic problem. The other part of it is, and this has been a lot of the work that I do now with organisations, obviously, particularly EY as the Chief Mental Health Advisor, is say that our other assumption about mental health is that each journey is somehow unique. 
right? And what that does is lead you into thinking that says we can't have common approaches. What we know is actually humans mm. are social animals and we broadly respond in pretty similar ways to a pretty similar set of events, right? Once you do that, you can start making some pretty good predictions, right? And say, well, if we think people will respond in a similar way to this event, then we, we when we can therefore reasonably assume yeah. that we can intervene here. So a great example of that was at EY was when I was helping them through the pandemic that we knew coming out of the lockdowns that cognitive load would go up. So as people are in lockdown, they were super tired. Um, they, But the advantage of lockdown is you didn't have to do much. You didn't have to make very many decisions. Yeah. Right. So what do we expect to happen as lockdowns happen? People are tired. People are feeling really low. But then as they open up, they have to say, you know, do I see my great nan? Do I have, you know, do I go on holidays? You know, which friend do I see in order? We actually had to make a lot more decisions. And so we knew people would get even more tired, right? So by making that prediction, we're able then to advise and all credit to EY leadership say actually let's take let's shut down the business you know at the start of october and the start of november give everybody a break because we knew cognitive load was going up does it solve every mental health problem in the world no ask anyone at ey did i genuinely need a break at the start of october and the start of november the answer is absolutely yes did we genuinely appreciate that EY shut and, and think about it from you know um the senior leadership like you're the ceo of ey oceana you're running this massive beast. And you go, do you know what? We're going to close shop over and give everyone extended long weekends twice at the busiest time of the year, right? And they're the things that you can do when you use psychology in a predictive way. Yeah. <laughs> this is, and that's, I think, the, for me, the most exciting thing coming out of the pandemic and what we've been able to show is psychology mm. is not just a reactive science. It's not just about waiting for someone to have a problem and then trying to fix them up later. It's also a predictive science in the same way that economics is a predictive science. If you think this will happen, you therefore can intervene here and, and, and head off things over the past. How do we use this to say coming out of the pandemic, we can choose different ones? So a big, you know, a big one that I've been talking to a lot of organisations about, which is that we know that good mental health at a population level is highly, highly correlated with people's perception of fairness yeah. It comes through income equality. It doesn't matter how wealthy the country are, income disparity tends to lead to a more miserable community overall. Yeah. Mm. So as we come out of the pandemic knowing that, what is probably our most effective mental health intervention? It's not scaling up the mental health system. It's having a recovery from the pandemic, an economic recovery, where everybody sees that they have an opportunity to build a great life in Australia. Mm. If we come out of it like we did it out of the GFC, where whole segments of our community feel like they're being left behind and marginalised, mm. then we come out of it with a whole bunch of people who are angry, a whole bunch of people who don't see themselves in the story of Australia, and a whole bunch of people who end up kind of fighting and being miserable. Right. And if you look at, you know, a lot of what I was helping with, you know, and you see this particularly in Victoria um, at the moment where the level of anger is probably higher than other parts of actually a lot of the challenges there is not just the length of the lockdown, but actually they've got to process a lot of grief yeah. and a lot of challenges that well, actually we can solve that problem. It's going to be we can solve that problem by saying to everybody, hey, let's come together and knit our community back together in a positive way. Um, that is a really effective, you know, that's a really effective mental health intervention mm. that doesn't require a thousand psychologists. It mm. requires us to set policies and interventions that are, that are equitable. Again, going back to EY, EY did that when, mm. you know, when in the first stage of the pandemic, you know, most companies talked about shared sacrifice, asked yeah. people like yourselves, can you take holidays at the wrong time? Can you, you know, you'll worry about your jobs and your mm. grads, all that sort of stuff. Mm. Tony Johnson the advice again great leadership right i said i'm pretty sure that this is a health crisis not an economic mm. crisis whole kind of hold you know, don't don't mm. jump too early yeah. a lot of other organizations made a lot of people redundant proactively or preventatively 
Yeah. EY's economic results were really good. People felt really cared for. Mm. But also, when one step further, I was saying actually shared sacrifice needs shared reward. So as the economic results came back, then EY consciously made a decision Mm. to say, let's make sure people are looked after. And we were really deliberate around how we designed that. Like, we asked for some of your leave at the wrong time. Can we give some of your leave back? Mm. At a level of economic insecurity, and can we give you a bonus? You know, can we make sure that people are thinking through how to fit out their home with a home office allowance, right? But fundamentally, it was about you can't ask people like yourselves who are new grads, Mm. buckle down and support EY when the times are hard, Mm. and then when the times go good, all the wealth transmits to the partners, right? So then people get really kind of jaded. So that's part of that whole thing where you go, as a mental health intervention, um, I that's a mental health intervention that is a really smart one to do. Mm. But it's also just built around using kind of values and science to say, if we ask people for a sacrifice, we've got to give them a benefit at the back end. You can't, you, you can't ask for one without. Yeah. You, you made, you made a, you made a good point, Jono, with like um, the trauma that we experienced during 2020. Mm. Like there's a series of multiple traumas that, that happened uh, in 2020 and even 2021 that we just haven't processed just yet. And mm. um, I know you've talked about this in terms of like, this idea of the um, the idea or I- of identity that we've built in within ourselves and reality, and when those two are like, there's a dissonance that exists between those two. That's where things kind of get a bit murky. Um, I'd love for you maybe just to paint that picture a little bit more in terms of what's going on, but also like quite interested in understanding, you know, this idea of trauma and how people. Um, or how you think people might start recovering from it in the months to come. Because you hear about it even with little kids that, um, you know, probably haven't touched, you know, when you're in prep or grade one or, or even kindergarten and they haven't touched or hugged other people, that really plays yeah. with like the tapestry of like how their minds are wired. Um, yeah, just wondering, because I think you made a really interesting point around trauma in 2020 and 2021 and what that means for us um, going forward. Yeah, so I think there's a... Trauma is a really big word and and banded and, and banded around a lot, but I think it's entirely appropriate here. And mm. I think the first thing is trauma comes in two ways. You can have acute, severe trauma. Mm. Right? Think about experiencing a car accident or experiencing a bushfire. Right, the time in which you experience the trauma is, is short and sharp and mm. acute. But you can also have a form of trauma that's cumulative. So think mm. about a kid who experiences. Uh, abuse over a number of years, right? It's, it, it is is what we would think of as cumulative trauma. Mm. So what what we've experienced through twenty and twenty one is more in the kind of cumulative frame. The trauma has actually been connected to to more the experience of loss of control, yeah, and and that is really kind of part of our identity. So two things that kind of send the brain into a fear state. The first is, does reality match the script I have in the back of my head as to how reality should unfold? Expectation. Expectation, right? And as long as those two things roughly match, we feel safe, right? Mm. Because our brain then goes, I can relax and solve new problems. The Mm. second one is an extent to which I influence the world, right? Does the world happen to me or do I happen to the world? And what you find with people who have a very solid identity is the life is predictable and they believe they have high agency. Mm. So going to kind of the 2021 is for most people who that was their story, that story unraveled. And so what the brain does is go, hey, the world's unpredictable. What do I do? I go on hyper alert and I get ready to run or fight, right? Our response to that is to try and take control. That's what most of that hyper productivity was during first phase of lockdown. Because the brain goes, actually, how do I feel safe? I I take control. Mm. I do stuff. Mm. I I do stuff to make myself feel safe. Yeah, our brains are very predictable. (laughs) Yeah, what happens after about six to eight weeks, and this is what I was helping EY on, what most organisations did that was incorrect was they loaded all the wellbeing initiatives in the first six weeks. Yeah. And what we did in advising EY was hold your nerve because in six weeks, people are going to hit the wall, Mm. right? And the reason why they hit the wall is they actually have to realise that the activities they undertake do not make themselves feel better. And then you hit Mm. what we now know, and this is the work of a a great psychologist called Seligman. So what learned helplessness is a realisation that your actions don't matter. Mm. 
right? And and as I said, I'd encourage everyone to read their research because what will resonate for people is a lot of the trauma that you spoke about, Sonny, is actually learned helplessness. Mm. I tried to take control of my life, but every time I did, that agency was removed from underneath me. And the challenge that happened in Victoria more than other states was not only the length of the lockdown, mm. but the speed turnaround. So as people started to change, and they would say, just as I kind of started to prep, then I went back into lockdown mm. and then I started to prep. And after a while you go, why bother? Mm. And so it's almost more yeah. psychologically comforting mm. to not have any control because yeah. at least the world yeah. is predictable. Mm. Yeah. Another, like, I think in terms of that control and that control of your decision-making, it actually is a really good segue into something that we really wanted to speak to you about. It's around the, the Great Resignation. And it was actually coined by this management professor uh, in like the New University of Texas, uh, Anthony Cloth. He had this idea of, you know, this mass, it's this idea of like this mass exodus of employees sort of leaving their their jobs. And, um, you know, current, like, it's currently like a prominent movement within the US at the moment. I think there's around 4.3 people Oh, 4.3 people, 4.3 million people, sorry, uh, quitting their, quitting their jobs. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, one third of a person just cut off. Uh, yeah, this is like one employee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, and um, a lot, of, and there may be a lot of things kind of causing it, but I think one of the, um, one of the key things, like you mentioned there, Jono, was around people wanting control over their life and control over their decision making. So, particularly with COVID, and Sonny and I have both reflected on this, this fact. You know, one of the things that we've observed with, with some of our friends, one of the, like you mentioned, we're, we're social beings, Jono, and um, one of the reasons why they loved like work and, and they like going into the office was meeting the people and meeting the team um, and communicating with, with people, not, not necessarily about work, but just about general kind of life. Because that social interaction was kind of taken away, we're kind of left with the, like, just, just with the work aspect. So like, I think a lot of people may have performed some introspection as to, you know, what they actually wanted to do with their with their life and what they wanted to do kind of next. And what actually a really cool observation that they made in this in like in, in a study that they did in the US was that the pe- the people that actually left their or were made redundant in their jobs at, at the start of COVID, there's a very large percentage of them who have who still haven't re entered the workforce workforce, even though there's a massive demand for 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 jobs in that in that in that space. So I think it's a it's a pretty cool like um it's a pretty cool kind of kind of observation in terms of people kind of trying to take control back of their lives and um yeah i think it, like, it kind of takes us back maybe to that adolescent kind of stage where you know we're, we're trying to find and we're trying to find out what we want to do next and i think a lot of for, for us adolescents a lot of one of the big things for us and, and i can speak for myself and, and um, potentially even sunny is that one of the things that we really value is purpose within our work and a lot of well, a lot of us a lot of us want to like have um you know, we want to have an impact. We want, I think, we have that kind of adolescent kind of mindset where you know the world is our oyster, and we can just go and just you know do whatever, and you know live our life aligned with our values and and and, and stuff. So, um, I think maybe potentially adults who have spent a lot of time in their particular in their particular workforce, um, the pandemic may have shifted them back into that adolescent mindset, being like, hey, I want to be, I want to live a life full of purpose, and I want to live a life full of that. You know, I want to do what I want to do, kind of thing. That's absolutely right, and that's part of the renewal phase, right? Is that we we want to try new things to mark ourselves as a new person, right? It's mm. not just changing jobs. It's buying puppies. It's buying kayaks. Yeah. It's buying houses. It's, you know, so people are making decisions because those things are about an identity, right? I am a new mm. person and I'm taking control of my life again and I need to kind of feel better about that identity. They're doing it in a very unconscious way, right? So when yeah. I kind of say this, you know, like this is all these things happening generally on a when I'm running stuff, people are like, how the hell do you know my life, right? <laughs> <laughs> because for them, it's been this very individual thought to buy a puppy or you know move houses mm. or you know all these things. But actually, when you look at it at an identity level, that's what it's about. And you're right. What are the what is the answer to that, right? I think the first thing that's really really fascinating, particularly for a younger generation, is that there is a once in probably the last time this happened, I reckon, was after World War Two. During World War Two, most of the workforce were women. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a fundamental change in relationship to the nature of work, um, certainly in kind of Western countries, Western democracy, right? And then it all mm-hmm. kind of went back again. This is probably the one where for, for most of the world, there's been a fundamental reevaluation of our relationship to work. Yeah. Right. Why am I working? Mm. What's my work? What's the right workplace? I think the other interesting thing, if you look in 2022, and I think this will continue, 
which is because of of labor shortages that are critical right and it's actually like supply chain shortages it's not smooth it's like all of a sudden there are no nurses and then all of a sudden there are no one working in the service sector and then all of a sudden so it's like it's like actually labor shocks if that makes sense because the economy is yeah. mm-hmm. um mm. then what it does is mean that a lot of employers are genuinely thinking about well how do i need to retool my business to attract talent so that's going to be i think the big change which is businesses and smart businesses are already responding by designing a proposition that's that's built around attracting and retaining the people as they change their relationships yeah. again this is the work you know that i do advisor organizations on about you know and and ey's and, and you know going back to the ey example of you know reframe your career what did that come out of advice around renewal if people want to renew and the idea is hey you can reframe you can renew through ey Mm. that is a deliberate Mm. pitch from ey to its own people to say hey don't leave us change your Mm. identity through us and we can do that in different ways so once again you look at psychology as a predictive science you can cut saying actually we can do this to create a proposition that people want to talk to you rather than just wait for everyone to resign mm. and then change. But I, yeah. I, I'm, I, I think, you know, again, this is one of those really interesting things where you as individuals can also be really, really clear on, exactly. well, what, what do I want to be? I'm changing my identity. My kind of challenge for everyone is what you want to be is the best version of yourself. And what you need to do mm. is start to describe yeah. what that best version looks like and saying, does this current employer help me get there? Yes or no. Mm. And can mm. I kind of build a career through that current employer? What I would always yeah. say to people is your answer shouldn't be just change. Like your answer should actually be going and giving exactly. your current employer the opportunity to grow with you because sometimes you, they'll yeah. surprise you um, mm, by yeah. giving you those opportunities. Mm. You, you mentioned um, one one thing I've really liked, Jono, and what you've shared is like being deliberate about our drivers mm. of well-being and, and, and actually being consciously like consciously doing the good stuff that makes us happy mm. and limiting the stuff that doesn't make us happy because naturally that's going <laughs> to mean we're living a life that's, you know, seven out of 10 or six out of 10 plus. Um, I know in one of the talks that you did uh, earlier this year, I think you talked uh, about this concept of burnout. And I think um, this idea of burnout, that inability of your prefrontal uh, cortex to think clearly. Um, and a lot of people, um, I can speak for myself. I don't know about you, Mank. I have the sense you and I, our conversations, I can probably speak for you. But, you know, we've, we've just been working really hard over the last couple of months. And uh, what you talked about, the great resignation, a lot of it has been fueled by this idea of pursuing something more purposeful mm. or, or um, something that has more passion. But then also this idea that we're just tired, yeah. like we just need a break, cut the line, take some time off. Um, and maybe part of it is just that novelty of thinking that, you know, the grass is grass is greener on the other side. Um, I guess question to you, maybe twofold. One, like, how do people start, like, you, you mentioned that idea of, like, letting your employer grow with you. Mm-hmm. Um, people that might be considering, you know, that exodus next year and, and leaving, maybe some things for them to think about, maybe before doing that or making sure that they're conscious about doing that. And that's not just something that's in response to perhaps this burnout or uh, an idea of novelty, if that makes sense. Um, And then on the back of that, I guess how you've personally been deliberate about prioritizing um, drivers of well-being in your own life. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So look, I'm going to answer the the second one first because I think the big part that you have to do and what I do on a daily like, is go actually put together a daily success list. And that daily mm. success list says I actually need to do things for my well-being, things for my family, things for my social life, things for uh, work. And I only allow three actions per category. What does that mean? It means that actually at the end of the day, my life isn't successful if I do nine work things and no well-being things. My life is successful yeah. if I balance that. And what does that mean? It means I actually have forced my work into the things that have the greatest leverage right and then accept that i can't always um i can't always do everything i want at work because i actually Mm. am a more Mm. kind of complex person i would kind of say for people around their well-being and this is the brutal truth right Mm. 
which is the people with high well-being tend to choose high well-being. Right, most of most of high well-being is about the discipline of execution. Yeah. So, so there are yeah. very few people in the world, particularly if you have you know you, you kind of you have basic economic security, right? So you're talking about people like you know like us who have jobs, and so like put aside people in poverty in terms of of not being able to control their life. Most people can choose to sleep eight hours a night. Most yeah. people can choose to eat well. Most people can choose to exercise. Mm. Right? Most people can choose to wake up when the sun gets up. Most people can choose to not look at their mobile phone all day. Most people yeah. can choose yeah. to go out with their friends. Most people can choose yeah. to stop drinking alcohol, right? So you look down the yeah. list of all the things that are driving well-being, and when people say to me, I don't have very good well-being, and we go down that list and they go, well, I'm not, you know, I plan to go to the gym, but I never quite get there, and I plan to sleep well, but I'm, and I'm like, actually, how committed are you? Like, Yeah, it's a choice. And yeah. I'm like, just how committed are you? Because there's a big difference between what you want to happen that's easy, right? Most of us want to have, you know, a six-pack but without the exercise, that's it. That's fine, right? Most of us want to have a mustache in under five years, yeah. right? <laughs> but, it, but it's not necessarily easy is actually then worthwhile. But what you have to do is kind of stick with discipline. Mm, yeah. The discipline of execution that says this is important, therefore I'll prioritize it. And so my kind of challenge for a lot of people around well-being, which is they haven't done their bit. In, and that's that's kind of most of that kind of work that you do. And if you look at people who really prioritize, and what I'd also say to people is prioritizing that comes with an opportunity cost. So you don't get to not pay the piper, right? So if I'm doing, if I'm really focused doing three or four things that are really, really important, actually what I know at the end of my day is I've disappointed five people, right? So if you see a successful business person or, you know, uh, you know, Steve Jobs of like, yes, you did some amazing example, but you're also a really bad dad. Right? There, there is an, I wouldn't know if I'm kind mm. of modeling my life, I wouldn't model it yeah. around Steve yeah, Jobs. Yeah, yeah. Is my yeah. point, right? Mm. And so that, that I think then is the, you know, is the biggest part of what you need to do and, and work on mm. in terms, um, and in terms of your well-being. That's a great point, yeah. I really like the idea of choices and self-empowerment there, Jono. And, I, and I, I really like the idea of putting the onus and responsibility on the individual and, and that realizing that, you know, realizing that you want to be at this particular state, but the only thing that's stopping you is your own choice. And I think hmm. there's a level of, of kind of just humbleness to that and a, and a sense of really in a sense of empowerment to that idea and that you know you're the captain and, and you can decide where you want to steer the ship kind of idea and yeah um i can you know i can kind of take an example here of someone who potentially doesn't like the work that they're doing at the moment and who spends you know spends a lot of their time and energy complaining about how they want how much they hate it and how much they want to change and of course there's obviously considerations here around how long you've been in the job and, and whether it's it's feasible to leave but I guess one of the questions one might uh, might have around this and what leading to your own point was what are the actions you are taking in order to get yourself out of that situation? Like, yeah. and it goes back to that point that you were saying before around, you know, whether the world is happening to you or you're happening to the world kind of thing. Like, and I, and I think, you know, realizing that you have the power to do something is, is really, really important. And it, it goes, it goes to the first part of your question as well around choosing to resign or not resign. My only feedback to people is, don't outsource your well-being to a third yeah. party. Mm. Right? So if you're really, really deliberate and intentional to say, I want to live my best life and my best life looks like A, B, C, D, and when I compare my work as a tradie, I'm not seeing compatibility, therefore I'm deliberately choosing another employer or another, thing. that's mm. fine. My nervousness with people is they go, I'm unhappy here, unclear of what my best life is, and they outsource their well-being to a new employer to solve yeah. their problems yeah. for them. Yeah. Right? And then what you do is you, in that lack of intentionality, you just kind of hop around yeah. and expect that your employer is your parent, right? So you go back to that idea of what is, you know, what's the 
a child outsources their well-being to adults. Adults make their big decisions mm. for them, and then they get to complain, mm. right? And adolescent practices agency mm. and oscillates between mm. the two, mm. right? What does an adult do? An adult says, I'm going to choose to be the best version of myself and I'm going to bring people into my world who help me, and I'm going to share agency to help other people. And so I think when people are kind of weighing up their well-being in relation to their employer and all those sorts of things, it's like, actually, how much do you bring in that intentionality first to your current employer and say, this is the life I want to live. Can you help me do that inside here? What you'd be really surprised is a lot of employers will actually do that, particularly in the current mm-hmm. market, right? What you tend to find is not a lot of people asking that. You know, and I, I look at that in my relationship to EY, I'm, I'm have my own company. I'm an external advisor. I work with EY mm-hmm. two days a week, but I have a relatively, I guess, senior role in the sense of I talk to BLT and advisor have a fancy title, all those sorts of things, mm-hmm. right? But that came out of the intentionality that I said when I, I stepped down from Reach Out, um, that for a whole bunch of really personal reasons, I wanted to have absolute control of my world, and therefore didn't want to become a partner or a director at EY, I didn't want to choose. So when I spoke to Tony Johnson about joining EY, he said, do you want to join? And I said, no, no, can I be clear? I'm not joining EY, I want to help EY. Mm. And this is the, this is that kind of thing. Now, Tony was a right to say, well, no, either you're an employee or, or we don't have right. And I go, okay, cool, I now have to make a choice, right? There was a yeah. consequence. Mm. Because there was intentionality, we found a way that means that EY helped. There were, really happy with my role and an and advisor and I'm really happy with my role, but it's adult. It's, like it's a negotiation, mm, right? Mm, mm. And it only came about because I said, actually, this is my boundary. My boundary at the moment is that I want to run my own company. I want to do some things for a whole bunch of reasons. I want to have that yeah. flexibility. And, and can I find a way to share agency with you? So you get what you want. I get what we want. We get what we need to get up. Other than go, I don't really want to join EY, but I can't think of anything more creatively, so I'll just join EY and then complain that EY is not doing everything it wants to be, right? So that would be kind of a classic example I'd say to people, which is if you're thinking about changing your role, first decide what life you want and work out where you can find that best life. Don't allow a third party to fulfill that. Don't outsource that intentionally to say it's your job to solve my well-being issues no it's not really the trade-off is you work in some prescribed areas and they and they kind of um they kind of fulfill it does that make sense so that'd be what i would say and and you know conscious of of helping you guys kind of um close this out right which is you know where are we at we are at absolutely you know november 2021 what do we know about 2022 the 2022 will be hard. Mm. But what are most people, what is most people's mindset at the moment is I'm desperately leaving 2021 behind and I hope that 2022 will be leprechauns, unicorns and mm. rainbows. Rainbow. Most people want 2022 to be yeah. easy. Mm. Right? What's the risk is you've outsourced your well-being to a set of conditions that says, unless it's easy, I won't be happy. Yeah, mm. yeah. The intentionality that I would say for people is actually say i'm going to choose to be happy whether the external conditions are hard or easy because i have the capabilities to make decisions to be happy yeah absolutely and then you enter 2022 in a completely different mindset right you go actually what do i need to do to build the right framework the right friendship circle the right health conditions to do that now that doesn't mean that someone doesn't get a mental health difficulty doesn't experience depression that's fine they're fixable problems but but that's our big challenge that you know, as we go through this renewal phase, the one thing that we have to choose is we actually have to choose the person we want to be on the other yeah. side of that and and lean into that and then have a big long break to recharge into that identity rather than just go, oh, yeah. shit, mate, I just want to leave 2021 yeah. behind <laughs> and have no idea what 2022 looks like, mate. Wasted all. In, incredibly. So, okay, I guess one really quick thing, Sonny. I think um, you mentioned a really good point there around outsourcing your own happiness, um, Jono, and it's very, very similar to um, an idea that they explore in the resilience project around the happiness hypothesis. It's like the if and then kind of situation where, you know, y- you have this idea that um, if I get this, then yeah, then I'll be happy exactly. 
Um, and it's it's super important to understand that. Um, mm. Exactly, yeah. So uh, I just want to add mm. that in. We are mindful that you are you're on a very tight schedule here, Jono. So I think we we might have a bit of a, a rapid fire kind of question um, that we wanted to try and finish off this finish this podcast off with. Um, Sunny, did you want to maybe, maybe? Yeah, cap, we'll, we'll, we'll we'll cap it off in sixty seconds, Jono. Uh, first first one, if you could have a dinner with one player from the Premier League, who would it be? Um, I'd like Will Saha. Like he's a Crystal Palace player, but. He's also a really interesting guy. He gives away about 10% of his salary. Yeah. Losing South London, really committed mm. to his roots. Yeah, like I think I, he's a really, for me, of all the players that I know a lot about, mm. um, he's a he's an in, he's a really interesting and really interesting mm. guy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, how much sleep do you get a night? Uh, anywhere between eight to ten hours. A very good point, Johnny. Uh, last one to close things off, and this isn't just from Mank and I. I think this is from the larger <laughs> EY cohort. Um, a lot of the colleagues have asked us uh, ahead of this conversation: Is a four-day work week on the cards <laughs> in the future at some point? <laughs> Do you know what? I'm going to be controversial here, Sunny. Right? And we can come back. This is only these leading to the Yeah. Four-day work week's bullshit. Okay. <laughs> Jeez. And <laughs> so, so I'm afraid to say to all the people at EY about, yeah, that's the mic drop, right? Um, <laughs> do you know why? It's, it's, it's really kind of interesting. So my fundamental thing is, why don't you just make five days of work awesome? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Right, so the, the fundamental intentionality for me is people are of that mindset that work costs me and therefore I should compress it. Mm. Right, my view is, my view point. is actually... Um, as long as you're fairly paid and a whole bunch of other things, right? Um, That's actually a very good point. doing work over five days um, is not a bad thing. Therefore, the work over four days is not a solution, right? So I have no problem if people want to work four days. What I would say is that um, thinking of that is a solution um, to your life's problems yeah, is, again, outsourcing your well-being to a magical scenario that if I so work four good. days, I'm going to be happier. It's so good. That's the case. Just work four days and mm. take the 20% pay cut. Right? And again, this is kind of my issue with the four days. Which people want yeah. the five-day salary, generally. Yeah. Yeah. They just want to do it for yeah. four days. Yeah. I was like, if you're really clear about it, you really think your well-being yeah. is going to be determined by work four days, bite the bullet. Take the twenty percent yeah. cut. Yeah. Better, be happy on the four days work, and, and then you then you can kind of work it. Generally, people, yeah. generally people back away pretty quickly. Once you say take the twenty percent pay cut, then you can. Um, and we can come back to that in, in, in another in another kind of podcast. Another point. All right, cool. No, thank you so much for that, John. Jono. Um, you know, we really appreciate it of your time. That is it. Um, as, as much as we don't like that last response, I think we, we definitely do understand it. Um, but no, thank you so much, Jono. Thank you so much for taking uh, the time to speak with us. And um, yeah. yeah, I guess, yeah, take it easy. All right, yeah. guys. Looking forward to it. Yeah. And um, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you, Jono. Um, that's a wrap for this episode if you are enjoying our conversations please help us out with a quick rate and review on spotify and other podcasts all the conversations are recorded in video so check us out on instagram and facebook at our handle at drop us a comment or a message if any of these conversations resonate with you and most importantly please share this podcast with anyone who might need it so as always this is bottled up thanks for being part of our family and see you next time <laughs>